Uh, I want to give a special thanks to those of you that came yesterday and helped us get all the flower beds cleaned up. That's why it looks so nice when we all came in, unless you came in from Jacoby, we'll get over there later. But if you came in from DeBarco, it looked nice. I actually, I was here early, but I didn't stay for it. Uh, if you hadn't heard, um, I was out there getting some things ready, and my little baby girl, who's 17 months old, was attacked by a yellow jacket's nest, stung nine times. I called the doctor. They said, call 911. The fire department's here. Ambulance is here. She's okay, but uh, she's got a very puffy eye this morning. Uh, and so I can tell you uh, very truly, my heart burns with a very hot hatred for that nest. I know where they are, and I'm going to get them. I don't even feel bad about it. God, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for them often. But that's for humans. He said nothing about bees. And I am going to get them. Their mothers will wait to hear their wings beating home safely at the end of the night. And they will wait in fear and they will wait in vain. Because I'm going to wipe them out from the face of the earth. They will not inherit the nest. Blessed is he who dashes their larvae against the rocks. The earth cries out for the blood of that hive. And who am I to deny it? Uh, but thanks to everybody who got it looking so nice around here. Uh, along with hatred is gratitude. I feel both, so thank you. Hate the bees, love the church. Um, you know, being a sports fan in Oregon, there's an experience that we're all denied. We don't get an experience very often, and that's winning, winning championships. It never happens here. Now, I get it that I could be a soccer fan and enjoy that more often. I heard the timbers and the thorns are really good. I, I, I would love to get there. I just can't cross the barrier, and maybe one day it'll happen. But for us, we, we always are like, this is it. This is the season that the Blazers are getting it together. The Ducks are getting it together. Have you seen what's going on? And we get excited. And really, honestly, the closest that I've seen, because I wasn't here in 1977 the last time we won a championship in this state, uh, was the 2010-2011 Ducks season. They went completely undefeated, and not by a little bit, but by a lot. Most of those games were not close, totally dominant, running a whole offensive system that no one was really familiar with stopping, and it was this incredible run. And in my family, we would often host, if there was a big championship or bowl game, uh, we would host people to come over and we'd watch it at my parents' house. And we hosted a party that year to watch the championship game. The Ducks were going to play Auburn for the national title. And I had, we had Ducks fans show up, and they got their hats on, and they're, they're amped. All season long, they're just talking trash. They're amped and like, oh, here we're going to go. They were so excited. And if you were to Google that game, it looks close. If I recall, I think the score was 19 to 22. It looks close. But if you watched it, it was not close. It was a bare-bottom spanking from the beginning until the end. The Ducks got randomly lucky, so they left with a little bit of dignity. But this unstoppable force was brought to an embarrassing halt and was really manhandled on the field. And it came clear to everybody that watched that there really wasn't a debate. What is a championship for to divide who's the best team? And you just knew that Auburn was better. To all the Ducks fans, I'm really sorry for bringing that up. I know that that's PTSD for you. I do believe God will heal you in time, but it has been 11 years, so. And it was interesting. I think one of the things that stuck out to me the most was watching these really fired up Ducks fans just get more and more morose. They went from being just super excited, loading up on the nachos and just so excited for what they're going to see until they had the demeanor of like a shaved dog. You know, dogs get shaved, and you're surprised dogs can feel shame, and they apparently can. 
Like they just, like so embarrassed about the game. Failure really changed how they saw the Ducks. I actually have a friend who was a hardcore Duck fan. He was a contributor to Addicted to Quack, which was an online Ducks news forum thing. And he was, he was this major contributor. He's like given up. That, that game broke him. And he was like, all right, I think, I think I've been selling out my life for too much. And now he's like the main person that reminds me that fan is short for fanatic. Um, but failure, it changes how we see things. And winning can be a really blinding thing. You know, I'll hear stories of really corrupt ministers that were just abusive, and, and the stories start coming in, like, how did, how did anyone tolerate this guy? How did anyone deal with it? And they were because he was getting results. So the financial abuse, the, the, the personal abuse, the ways that they were overlooked because they were successful. Winning can be a really blinding thing. We just don't question success. We don't question, is this really not all that great of an idea? What if you do run an offense nonstop and you play a team that's got a really great defense so you wear yourself out and look like fools for four quarters? That happened 11 years ago. Passing the test of failure is really hard. Going through failure, coming out the other end, rebuilding. And passing the test of success is equally hard. To succeed, to come out the other end, and to be careful that we don't grow tall in our own eyes and that we remain in the truth and know that God gets the glory for the things that he did in our lives. That we wouldn't change history in our minds of, of, of it isn't that God handed me this incredible success, I did it. As a, a, a funny thing that uh, Pastor Lowell used to say when he was pastor here is, the older I get, the better I was. Uh, and it's the way people are like, I was starting linemen, I was... I was really something. All the girls in high school liked me, and they'd be like, I'd love to get in a time machine and find out how accurate this was. He wasn't actually literally speaking it about himself. He was just being more of a propensity of people, so I actually don't know him to do that. So let's clear his name while we're at it. But in the story we're reading today, Israel receives its first failure check. This has been a nonstop uh, victory run to where they have, they have faith and Jordan splits, the river, the river Jordan, and it dries the land up. It's miraculous. They come into the land of promise. They, uh, the Lord comes to them, says, I'm handing Jericho over to you. They go. They do the ceremony. The defenses are all wiped out in one foul swoop of God. They run in. They take the city. It's been a nonstop victory run for them, and it's been this grand thing, and we have to really put ourselves in their shoes, the history of it. They are inheriting a promise that was promised to them hundreds of years ago to an ancestor. And this is the time, the Joshua generation are the ones that invade in and take it. I would imagine they thought of Jericho as like the Costco sampling. This little taste is what's in the whole box if you buy it. That, that what happened at Jericho, it was a few people, it was a massive city, far too powerful for you to take, and you took it with great and incredible success. I wonder if they kind of sat around and said, boy, that was really something. That was something taking Jericho. We almost look strong. I think we're strong. Because that plays into their failure at, at to take I. God made it dramatically obvious to them. We talked about this last week, that God was behind the victory. They're just doing ceremony. They have all of these signs. The angel of the Lord, which is a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, it comes before them. They have every reason to have confidence that God is going to be with them and that it's going to be God who saves them. And yet, they seem to begin to forget this. So we're going to jump into chapter 7. 
We're continuing on, and I think it'd be worth it to remember something from last week. All the plunder of Jericho, because God took Jericho. That was his conquest, and they just come in and button, put the buttons down and finish it up. But he's the one that miraculously takes it, and all of the plunder was meant to go to him. Everything goes into the tabernacle because it's a testament to all of Israel. The victor gets the spoils, and it was the God is the victor. Do not forget, everything's dedicated to him. No one's meant to touch it. But the Israelites, it says in chapter 7, acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things, those things that were put into the treasury of the tabernacle. Achan, son of Camry, son of Zimri, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the people need to go, uh, excuse me, not all the people will have to go up against Ai. Send two or 3,000 men to take it, and do not weary the people, for only a few men are there. This is sort of like the passage of two sins. Achan took what was devoted to God, and Israel's leadership took the same. They took the glory of the battle of Jericho. Taking what belongs to God uh, is happening in both the life of Achan and in the nation. There is this sin that's breaking out to where there are things missing that were present when they asked God what to do how to take the city, what, to, what should be done. To God, the victory goes. The plunder is his. The sacred things are his. This is a really interesting thing that, to remember that because the things would go into the tabernacle, it's a constant reminder who won, who won the victory, who brought you here. It's critical because Judges is the sequel to this book. After reading this, I went on to read Judges, and Judges immediately picks up after the time of Joshua, and he died. These things happen. The people forgot God, and it is they forget God. They fall into captivity. They lose. They fail. They remember God. They come back out under a judge, and it's a really depressing book. It's up and down like that. It's the beginning of what's going to become a long sin of forgetting who delivered them. Achan is doing a lot more than theft. He's breaking a covenant with God and refusing to remember him. There's a few things we know about uh, AI, or I. I call it AI a lot, so forgive me if I say that. It's called I. Uh, There are about 12,000 people that live there. So to send 3,000 shows extreme overconfidence. Extreme confidence that is completely misplaced because the miracles of Jericho were never intended to tell Israel, you're great, you're elite. You can take enemies out that have you greatly outnumbered. Jericho was to show that God would defeat Israel's enemies. So what's missing? What's missing from this? There were spies sent to Jericho. There was a report that came back, a battle plan put together. What's missing is God in all of this. When the spies came back from Jericho, they spoke long about God, what God was doing, how God knew what was going on in the city, how people were afraid of God. When uh, Joshua prepares for his assault on Jericho, he consults with God and gets a battle plan from God. What's missing is that God is not mentioned once in any of this, not by the spies, nor is he consulted. Israel has grown very tall in its own eyes, and it's failed the test of success. How 
had they gone to God before any of this happened, had they gone and sought him for a plan, we can be assured that Achan's sin would have been um, revealed right at the beginning, that they would have known what he had taken, that there was sin in the camp. There are two sins. Achan takes what's devoted to the Lord, and Israel's leadership does the same. They take glory for the battle of Jericho. And it's an interesting picture because it's what's happening with one is happening with the other. This simultaneous problem is beginning to break out. So we move on to the battle. Verse 4 says, So about 3,000 men went up, and they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. That phrase, they melted and became like water, is actually a mirror of what uh, Rahab said was happening to the Canaanites. That as, the, as God was around them, they melted and feared because they were uh, exposed to destruction. And it's a really interesting parallelism because they want us to see that without God, Israel is just like the Canaanites. They are just as much uh, in the same kind of trouble. They are not different. It is God that makes the difference, and it's a lesson that our uh, characters are forgetting about today. What's interesting about Ai as a city is that we know that it was destroyed long before this. In fact, Ai means the ruins. The, the, when we, I read a minute ago, it says they rent, cut them down to the stone quarries. Most commentators say that's most accurately translated as the ruins. So this is a place where about 12,000 people are not so much living in a city as camping out in ruins. This is a humiliating place and a demoralizing place to have defeat come from. And I can imagine the fear that makes them melt to their core is that if we can't stand up to these people, these post-apocalyptic living in tents, finding stones quarried to build stoves on, these people, if we can't defeat those 12,000, what do we stand a chance? What we know is that this failure comes from hidden sin. Now, I want to tell you something. Not all failures comes from hidden sin. That's a very dangerous belief. Not all sickness, brokenness, setbacks are God's judgment for hidden sin. This has been debunked by Scripture. Jesus addresses this bad theology. It is indeed not Christian theology. It's just bizarre superstition. That if, some, if something's going on, we immediately assume that there is hidden sin in someone's life. So don't misunderstand the point. The point is, is that hidden sin is costly, not the cause of every problem in everyone's life. We can have a really hard time with the fact that 36 innocent men died because of something one man did. It says 36 were cut down as they ran away. But you know what's interesting is this would have been a lot easier to swallow for our ancestors. They would have understood this a lot better. We struggle with the idea that our personal choices have an impact on the community, a real impact on our families and those around us, but this is an inescapable truth. It's very much a belief in our, in our culture to say things like, it is my body, and I can put into it and do it with whatever I want. But don't our friends also have a claim on our body? Don't they, don't they have some sort of claim and uh, reciprocity with you? Don't our children have some stake in the wellness of our bodies? Ask a child raised by someone who was an addict and wrecked their body and asked them if that had an impact on them. When we look at our bodies, we have to think to ourselves, 
This is my kid's father's body. This is my wife's husband's body. This is, this is my work's worker's body. This is the community's body. To the core of who we are, we actually do belong to the people around us. And our decisions have real impacts on them. No matter how much we want to believe that I'm sovereign over me, there's a area, there's just a distance, we're in a boundary where that ends. The truth is, is when you're saved, you belong to God. Whether you're saved or not, you belong to your family, to your community. This body is God's now, and it's given in perpetuity to the community. Who we are, our choices impact others, and they hurt others. It's really important, and I think we can understand everything that happens here from the severe judgment that gets poured out in a little bit on even more people for this sin, that we remember something very critical. Our choices impact the collective. Our choices impact everyone around us. We comfort ourselves with certain statements like, well, my hidden sin only impacts me. But the reality of Scripture is that it impacts the we. Verse 6 says, Then Joshua tore his clothes. He fell face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord and remained until evening. The elders of Israel did the same, and they sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Ah, O sovereign Lord, why did you even bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan Oh Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? Then the Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some things, they've taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen, they have lied. They have put uh, them in their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not go with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Failure is so disorienting. We have such an expectation of who we are. And I find it really amazing that though Joshua offers up an imperfect prayer, it was good enough for God to work with. And God brings an adjustment to where Joshua is convinced that God has just left them for destruction. It's never entered into his mind. Maybe there's sin in the camp. God comes, brings the adjustment, and brings a path to be restored. He tells them to consecrate themselves for the Lord's inspection. And this is uh, significant as we think of how it impacts Akon. This would have taken a few days. It was ceremonial washing. It was sacrifices. It was certain things they would do, feasts. could be fasting. And it gave him time to come forward. Some people think there's a possibility his whole family knew that the community was very small. Honestly, we don't know, and that's not really the point. It doesn't tell us that, so we don't know for sure. But it gives at least him time to come forward. And something happens. We don't really get a lot of the details of how it works, but they're drawn forward with either lots or prayer. They're first brought forward by tribe, then clan, then family by family until it comes to Akon. The Lord stops and says, it's here, it's in this house. Akon responds. 
as he's brought forward, he is highlighted, and they ask him, what's he done? It is true, I have sinned against the Lord, says Achan, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw the plunder and the beautiful robe from uh, from Babylonia and 200 shekels of silver and a silver wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I don't know if he really gave those details. That seems like a really weird thing to say when you're panicking. Uh, I coveted them and I took them. They are hidden in the ground inside of my tent, and the silver is underneath. Someone wake him. And in verse 24, it says, Then Joshua, uh, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons, his daughters, his cattle, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned his fierce anger away. Therefore, that place is called the Valley of Achor ever since. That judgment is rough, and we'll talk about it in a minute. But I want to go through a little bit of what he had said that is so... It's the same thing we hear about the sin that happened in, in the garden, the same way we're warned about it, that he sees, he wants, he takes. That we see something, that, that's coveting in, in a nutshell, is that we, we see something, we want it, we know we shouldn't have it, and the last step is to take it. And Christ's advice is so, is so different. His new command that, we are, that they're told not to take, don't take, don't take. And he says, if you find yourself looking, look away. I say to you that it's the person who looks and lusts at another man's wife that commits adultery, not just the one who takes it. Remember our New Testament advice, that we cut off coveting not at the resistance of taking, but we, that we start to address it and see its pattern and seek the Lord at the seeing. Once we take it, we're sure we can hide it, but it's there and it's doing its work. It is really painful to read that his entire family gets killed. The point remains the same. Achan's sin affects others. Our sin is always going to ripple out. It hits our families first. It hits people outside of that next. It is the way that it goes. Before Christ, in the era of grace and salvation and forgiveness, sin is cut out like cancer. It's not dealt with in the same miraculous healing way. Achan's sin is a poison that would poison that that community for generations that would ripple out, that would continue to be a problem. You can be assured that when God confronts sin in the Old Testament, it's to prevent greater death. It isn't just anger that burns towards people for the sake of it burning. In the same way that I hate those bees out there, it's also because I don't want my kid to get stung again, because the fireman told me that if she's been stung nine times, her chances of going to anaphylaxis at the next stinging is high. We protect things because we love something else. It can sin would have had an impact on generations, and you can trust that it needed to be done. God is just. In Christ, though, this severity is very much different because through him, through his spirit, and through his sacrifice, our our hearts can be transformed. Sin is atoned for by much greater means that we are tenderly touched and restored. And deep down, But the principle remains the same, that hidden sin needs to be dealt with, even if it hurts really, really bad to have it dealt with. 
because it does far more damage if it stays. It's hard to read that Achan and his sons and daughters were killed, but it would have been worse to read what would have happened had they remained. The impact that sin would have had, how it has rippled out, how it made people possibly forget God all the more. Maybe the conquest would have failed. Maybe the kind of failures that we see in judges, the depressing, they forget immediately. They have huge miracles and they tear it down. They build another idol up. That may have happened immediately and they could have never had the history that we find. It needs to be dealt with hidden sin. No matter how much it hurts, both for you and for your loved ones. Hidden sin isn't safe sin. We call it that because it's not out there. It doesn't seem to make us as liable because people don't see it and we feel we can contain it. But it's always going to cost us and others. Israel faced an enemy with, from without. The Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites. And in this passage, they're facing an enemy within. The enemy that was inside the camp. And it can do all the more damage. Our courage is not meant to be aimed just towards the enemies outside of ourselves, but also the enemy within. And we do so with the gracious presence of God. As Hebrews 4 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For, if we, uh, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. We are facing enemies within, and it is time to be courageous about them, to take them very seriously. But you don't deal with them in the valley of Achor. You deal with them at the throne of the, of the God of grace. That in that place, we can go and say, Lord, uncover this thing that's taxing within. That is the enemy within my own house, within me, impacting those that I love. Expose it to God and the community because it threatens so much. It threatens both you and them. That's why accountability always gets incorporated in these moments is because the sins that we hide aren't just about us. It's about us and you. It's about all of us together. We face this together. And I'll tell you how the story ends today. With this gone, with God's uh, favor on them and the sin cleansed from the camp, they do take the city and it becomes theirs. It is, I'll tell you, hidden sin is always worth getting no matter how much it hurts. And especially when you get to the other end and there's incredible victory, when God's favor rests on you powerfully and things break and change that you used to feel intimidated by. I'm going to pray for us, but as a, before I pray, I want to remind you of a few things. We have a wonderful elder team here of people that have stepped up and they said, I want to serve this community in a bigger way. I want to make myself available. I want to talk, spiritually counsel, and be there for people. And that, that team includes all of the pastors on staff. It includes uh, many couples. And if you are wanting to, to get closer mentorship about something that's been in your life and you're looking for a safe and good place to go to, my first and foremost thing is go with the elders in our church. This is a good team and a team that cares about you and what God's doing in your life. And even though they're, they're certainly not Jesus, they can do one thing that he does in that passage. They can empathize with you. They've been there. These are real people. It's a safe place to deal with these things. 
and to be courageous about it. I know that that thing has been in your life for a long time and I know it's been painful and you've wondered, can it go anywhere? But as it says over again in the book of Joshua, see the Lord's delivered it into your hands. You can be courageous about the enemy within. You can be courageous about the thing within. It protects you, it protects your family. So involve the community as you recover and heal and have an amazing testimony of what comes out the other side of that freedom. Lord, today I ask that you would, uh, that, that calling would come over us like we read today, that it's time to sanctify the camp, to prepare ourselves and say, Lord, would you come in and inspect, search me and know me, look through all of, all of my ways. Sometimes we've hidden it so well, we deceive ourselves into thinking we hid it from you. Lord, help us to see through our lives and find out what is the thing that threatens us? What is the enemy within? The predator that brings the, the depression, the anxiety, the pain into our lives. Lord, give us courage to face those things. Give us courage to face them with people that understand us. Though the enemy speaks in our ears, don't go, don't say anything, they won't understand. It's not going to do anything. It's all for a waste. You can hide it. You can contain it. Haven't you contained it long enough? The truth of the Lord comes and says that his blessings rest on us when we walk with him in the light. If we walk with him in the light, if we, walk, if we claim to walk with him in the light and yet we walk in sin, we deceive ourselves. We also deceive ourselves when we say there is no sin in our life. There is somewhere, Lord, today in every one of us where you would say right there that I want you to beat that enemy. I want you to take that city within you. I want you to clean that thing up. Let us walk with you in the light and enjoy your presence. That we would never lose you remain with you. Be with us, Lord, with conviction and with healing and courage in Jesus' name. Amen.